Welcome to the Legacy of John Williams podcast. I'm your host, Maurizio Caschetto, and this is a new installment of LA Studio Legends. My guest today is hornist extraordinaire, Dylan Hart. Los Angeles native, Dylan Hart is one of the most talented French horn players of his generation. He is one of the most requested studio musicians in Los Angeles and he performed in hundreds of scores for films, television, video games and theme parks. Dylan has recorded films with many great film composers such as Alexandre Splat, James Newton Howard, Bruce Broughton, Alan Silvestri, Hans Zimmer and John Williams. Astro Williams, he performed as principal horn on the recent Star Wars films The Last Jedi and The Rise of Skywalker, and also on Steven Spielberg's The Post. In this conversation, Dylan talks about his life and career as a studio musician, his many experiences playing for John Williams and his views on the music of the maestro, including his work for Star Wars. having on this show uh, a few of the great legends from the past uh, now we have one of the younger generation musicians uh, who played a lot with John in the last few years so thank you Dylan Hart for being here with me today thank you for having me it's a, it's a pleasure to be here and it's a pleasure to be a part of this in this series which I labeled LA studio legends I, I like to talk with musicians who are specialized in as a session and studio musicians so, but first thing I'd like to ask you about your musical background and formation. So, how and when you started studying French horn professionally and how you ended up being a studio musician? The way that I ended up being a professional musician is not a straight line, particularly. I know there are a lot of elite musicians to have, you know, started when they were four to nine years old and took lessons forever. and went to the top conservatories and studied with the best people and came out and started working right away and winning auditions and ended up wherever they were. Um, but my life definitely took a much different turn. Um, I didn't start playing music uh, until I, I played a little tiny piano when I was a kid and then quit it because I was bored. I, I used to sing in choirs, which I think helped a lot. Um, but I started playing alto saxophone in seventh grade off of some sort of uh, miss 
interpretation of an elective form that I filled out and I ended up in bands on accident and the teacher had me play saxophone and I played saxophone for a year and I got so good at it, um, moving from last year to first year and beating out the kids who were taking lessons and stuff like that because I had sang when I was a kid so I had some sort of ear. And saxophone, if you don't know, is, no offense, very easy. Um, <laughs> instrument, not the concept of music, but the instrument. So she said, you know, you're too poor to go to college. You're going to need a scholarship because I you know, was raised by a single mother in uh, kind of very low end neighborhood. Um, and she said, uh, you're going to need scholarship and you can pick the oboe, the bassoon or the French horn. And I said, I'll take the oboe. And she said, you can't, you can't afford the lessons. And I said, how about the bassoon? She said, you can't afford the instrument. She's like, I play French horn, so I'll teach the French horn. So you're playing the French horn. So I thought about it and I was like, well, all right, I guess so. I mean, if I want to be, if I want to play in an orchestra, I guess the French horn has a better chance of being in an orchestra than a saxophone. So I, that's how I ended up committing to it. And I didn't end up um, taking lessons. Um, I, I went to a couple summer camps. I went to uh, Idlewild Summer Camp, which is one of the camps out here in the San Jacinto Mountains in Los Angeles. Um, and I, you know, that's so I got whatever instruction there. Me and the band director actually never ended up having lessons. She was too busy with other things. Um, so I started taking lessons my junior year. A friend of mine's parents were in the LA Chamber Orchestra and were friends with Rick Todd, who was principal horn of the LA Chamber Orchestra at the time. And I went, and, I went to his house in Pacific Palisades and I think I showed up and I had long hair down to my shoulders and black fingernail polish or something like that. <laughs> and, uh, and I played for him. And he was like, yeah, you're, you're not good enough to study with me. And so here's somebody who's just in a town who you can study with. And, and he put me in touch with the second horn uh, of the LA Chamber Orchestra, which was Kristen Morrell. And I started studying with her like February of my junior year. And so she had less than a year to get me into shape to take college auditions at. And I was like, yeah, I want to go to Eastman and Rice. So I, I think I auditioned at Eastman and Rice and USC, and I put in an application to ASU as a backup. Um, and ASU accepted me without an audition, which I thought was nice of them. But I didn't. I got waitlisted to Eastman, and I didn't make it into Rice. And um, USC, Rick Todd heard me, and after not having heard me for a year, I, the improvement was really great. I went to quite a few summer music festivals and. So I practiced a whole lot um, and the improvement was so great. He was like, you have an amazing potential. I have to have you at the school. And he really stuck his neck out and brought me to the school because I didn't have very good grades. I had maybe C average grades when I was in high school. Not good. But I did get a good score on my SAT. I got like a 1300 on my SAT, which at the time was good. I don't know how many points of it it's worth now. or, But um so I ended up being able to go to uh, USC. And when I got there, Vince DeRosa was there and he had openings in his studio. He only had five lesson spots that he taught each week, two on Wednesday and three on Thursday. And he only had two students. So there were two or three students. So there were a few spots every single week that you could sign up for lessons. And so I took a lesson with him and it blew my mind, absolutely blew my mind. And I was like, I have to study with him. 
And so I used to camp outside of the office and wait until they posted his lesson so I could make sure to sign up. And eventually I just asked if I could join his studio and he took me on as his last kind of project. And he's like, I'm going to make sure, you know, I'm going to stay until you graduate. And he really took me on as a project. And then at some point I quit school for a year and I quit uh, French horn for a year and a half. I didn't play and I just worked odd jobs at grocery stores and tested to be a fireman in the forest service and did all sorts of stuff and ended up canceling all of that and going back to school and the Olympics were that at that point. And so I really started seeing, I think that's when Michael Phelps was winning a lot and he was talking, they were giving in, interviews and he said, you know, all the in athletes were saying, we sacrificed so much. I've sacrificed so much. I worked so hard. I'm so happy to be here. I've just, you know, all the sacrifice is really paying off. And I just thought to myself, I don't think I've ever really sacrificed anything for the French horn. You know, if somebody was like, hey, we're going to a party, uh, you know, where there's a kegger down the street, I'd be like, let me put down my horn and I'll be right there. Right. <laughs> okay. so, so I just started committing to the horn and I just started sacrificing and I started sacrificing too much. I started like missing classes at some point <laughs> after after uh, Mr. DeRosa, after Vince DeRosa retired, I started skipping music history every Wednesday and going up to his house and still taking lessons with him for like two hours, two and a half hours. And then he'd make me a sandwich. He taught me how to make some um, pasta sauce and very funny guy. His parrot will always yell at us in the background. It was, it was really fun. <laughs> but so, so then um, he left and there was a job search and Jim Thatcher ended up getting the job at USC. And so I stayed on for another two years to do an artist diploma or graduate certificate or whatever you want to call it. There's the non-class certificate degree program. So I stayed for two years and I studied with him. And at one point, uh, I think in my second year, I was going up to take the audition for Fresno Philharmonic. He called me and he said, what are you doing Thursday night? And I just said nothing. Because what am I going to say? That I was busy? So he said, all right, be at Fox at 7.30. And I was like, okay. So Wednesday, I, Wednesday we drove up, me and a bunch of other people from USC, we drove up the, the, the mountain and, and the, the five freeway, which is the main thoroughfare, was snowed out and it was closed. Which is, and Fresno's <laughs> four and a half hours away via the fast route. So we had to go around the back end of the mountain, which was about six hours. So we got there. I got there in the morning on Thursday morning. I played my audition and I advanced and they weren't going to start the next round until about noon or one. And I had a, my session at 730. I was like, all right, I'm out. And so I just left and I had carpooled with some people and I just left them there. Uh, but they, there was other rides. We talked about it. But uh, <laughs> so I drove there and it was, this was in 2007. Um, I got to the session you know, an hour and a half early, two hours early. Got lost on the Fox studio lot um, and went in and I think we had 16 or 20 French horns, eight on one side, eight or 10 on one side and eight or 10 on the other side of the room. I sat the very last, it was Horton Hears a Who and it was like the last session they had or a pickup session or something. And it was, it was amazing. It was the best thing ever.
was the very first session I did. And then I just started getting called here and there. Um, and, you know, the way that this town works is through reputation mm-hmm. and word of mouth. Yeah. And you never really know when somebody important is going to hear you. Oh, it's important to always play well. Like one of the biggest breakthroughs in my life was there's a large Korean music scene here. Um, and the Korean um, community has churches. I played at Sarang Gilhe, which is a Sarang church down um, in Orange County for years, every Sunday. That was like my steady gig. Um, but they also have a lot of concerto competitions and support their, their youth and stuff like that. And so I was doing this concerto competition at a random building uh, in Pasadena. And we had taken the gig and, you know, it's just a random gig. It pays 150 bucks or whatever. It just helps you get through the, the week. But the gig happened to be like Tchaikovsky Cello Concerto, you know, first moon of Tchaikovsky Cello Concerto, first movement of uh, Rachmaninoff to, I don't know, just a ton, all the concertos with all these huge horn solos in it. And the one of the principal oboes from the studios happened to be in the audience because he happened to be friends with somebody whose kid or, or his student was there. And he's like, I'm telling, I'm telling the contractor about you. That was absolutely amazing. And you, you just never know where it's going to be. And so people yeah. ask me all the time, you know, how do you get into the business? How do you make a living playing? And my advice is always the same. It's just be great, you know, be as, be amazing, be great. And people will find you. Absolutely. And also it talks about uh, uh, how much the lively the LA musical scene ha- has always been. I mean, for, like forever, you know, how, or even talking with older musicians from the previous, previous generations, it's always been this pool of talented musicians coming from all around the world and establishing a very specific sound also. And since you are a native of Los Angeles, so, so I guess the world of movie music has always been part of your life. So were you already interested in movie music when you were growing up? Uh, specifically, were you aware about the music of John Williams and how much that music was already part of your life become before you know, playing it, actually? Yeah, so music was a huge part of my life when I was growing up. My mom is a singer-songwriter. She's a folk singer. Uh, Lauren Hart, you can find her albums. And my brother... Uh, one of my brothers um, that I grew up with, David Britton Pryor, is a director, and he's a huge film soundtrack buff. You know, he's 14 years older than me, so I was very young when he was older, so he had a much more sophisticated palette of music <laughs> when, I was, when I was four years old and he was 18. I mean, everybody exposed me to everything. I, I listened to so I'm, I'm named after Bob Dylan. So I listened to so much Bob Dylan. I listened to so much Led Zeppelin and Grateful Dead and, you know, um, all the classic, classic rock as, as well as, you know, my brother who is a guitar player and now he's a, an electrical engineer that works for the government. Um, and he turned me on to, you know, Miles Davis and John Coltrane and, you know, Thelonious Monk, and we listen to all sorts of jazz. And then my, but my David Brent Pryor, who has a movie coming out this year called Empty Man. And um, he would constantly play music, movie music for me. He loved John Williams. I listened to E.T. and Jaws and Close Encounters. And he still, to this day, will whistle a random theme to me and say, what's that? I, I, like, uh, Chinatown. 
<laughs> he still quizzes me to this day on it. So he introduced me and I've, I've been listening to the LA sound my whole life. I just didn't know what was going on. So when I ended up in that scene, it was such a, it was such the right thing for me. It's, it didn't feel foreign. And specifically, how much the sound of the brass players was important in the creation of what we perceive as the sound of the movies. I mean, people like Vince DeRosa, you mentioned, or Jim Thatcher, and both were playing with John Williams a lot throughout the years, uh, you know, were so ubiquitous in, in film scores, not just by John Williams, but by many other composers. So they helped to find a sound uh, for many composers. And... Uh, how much you got from them in terms of interpretation and well my life wouldn't be what it is if it weren't for vince DeRosa and jim thatcher the level of scrutiny that vince would have with me was second to none even after he had left and i was doing late doing my later years i would prepare an audition and i would go play for him and I would play for different people around town and uh, they would all be like, wow, that's really fantastic. You know, great job. And I would play for him. And he's like, that sounds terrible. <laughs> like you watching TV while you're practicing. You know, he always told me, I, I was just like, you were, you're holding me to the standard. He's like, no, 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 I don't want you to be good. I want you to be great. I want you to be better than I was. And so he always just made sure that he wouldn't let me get away with anything. And not saying that he never said good job or that he never, you know, said he was proud of me or whatever, but just that he was never, he never let up and forced me to have a standard that I don't think exists a lot because that's a really old school way of doing it. There were a few people at USC who were, who were much, much older. I mean, you know, Vince will be a hundred this year, but they were much older and they would teach and they were really, um, when they taught, they were very, not demeaning, but um, aggressive and didn't accept mistakes and wanted you to do better. And when they weren't teaching, they were the nicest people in the world. You could totally talk to them and they were like super sweet. There was a conductor, like there were several conductors like that, but one of them was John Barnett at USC who studied with um, Stravinsky himself and Toscanini and had the best baton technique in the world but he would berate and yell at his students so bad when they were up on the stand. And when he was up on the stand, he would yell at the orchestra so bad and people were, would be so upset with it, but he stepped off and he was the nicest, sweetest, gentlest soul. It was amazing. It was just a different way of doing things. And I don't know if that, that exists today and I don't know, I don't even know how to get that anymore. Yes, it's very true because I think that probably also the, the, the way of teaching is changed. And you know nowadays teachers are much more 
you know, comfortable with students. They they probably don't yell at <laughs> all the time to to young people. But um, back about uh, Jim and and Vince, you know, uh, uh, your first session work with John Williams was Warhorse, right? Yes. And and I think Jim was uh, still in the orchestra at that point. Um, yes. So you basically stepped in when there was this change of personnel in John's orchestra. I know a lot of his historic players were retiring or were you know doing other things. Uh, so what were your first impressions working with John? And how much scared you were in stepping into those large shoes, you know? Well, when so my first session was Warhorse, like you said, and it was at Sony, and there were six of us, and we were in two rows, so we were stacked, and it was Jim Thatcher, Dan Kelly, and Jenny Kim, and uh, I can't remember who was on fourth, but then it was Bill Lane and myself. Bill Lane was the former principal of the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Um, so, you know, I was his own thing sitting next to him. It, I didn't have a whole lot to play, so luckily I didn't have to sweat too much. John writes a lot of chamber music, and so there was a lot more first and one, two, three playing. And I luckily had a lot more tacit, so I could just kind of observe what was going on and calm down a little bit. But it was one of the most incredible experiences because up to that point, I had only experienced working, you know, on a couple small pictures. I, I'd done, I'd cut a couple major motion pictures, but everything was very, very strictly to click. And this was really one of the first times I'd done anything not to click because he didn't want to do it to click. And Steven Spielberg was there and, you know, John was, had the picture on the big screen behind us and was conducting to it. And there were these streamers that go across. Streamers are these uh, lines from top to bottom of the screen that stream across the screen as, as the moving picture, as the picture is running, to let them know that something is about to come up and let them know that this is where they need to hit. So it's not like they were flying blind based on what they were seeing. There's, there's points that let you know something is about to come up or whatever. But it was incredible to, to watch because he, every time we played, it was a little bit different. I didn't know how he was going to edit anything because nothing would have matched <laughs> because it was a little slower or a little faster or we got to this, um, you know, big crescendo moment a little sooner or a little later or a little bigger or, and it was all based on how he was 
seeing the picture and, and how close he was to what the tempo was supposed to be, you know, quote unquote, or, or whatever. And it was the most amazing organic experience of music making in film that I'd ever experienced. I think that that's something that young composers really need to be aware of. And since then, I've done a lot of sessions. Um, I think I'm at 300 movies and TV shows and uh, albums and theme parks and whatnot. But the younger composers, when they free time, generally just take time and get slower and don't make it up on the other side by speeding up. And with John, it was always, you didn't know if you were gonna go faster or slower. You had to watch, you had to pay attention, you have to concentrate on what's going on because you still have a finite time of, of a scene at which you have to get your music in. And so if you wanna make something a little more lush and make it a little slower, drag it out, fine. But you gotta make it up somewhere and you got eat up somewhere. So don't just get slower and slower and slower and slower and slower. Could we say that he likes to uh, work as if he's uh, in a concert-like environment? I mean, does he like to, to, you know, to interact with musicians and with the orchestra in general, even though there are, of course, many things that he has to, be, to take care of? Absolutely. John really loves to work as if he's in a concert setting because he writes music as if it is in a concert. All of his scores can stand alone and his cues can stand alone without the visual. You know, if you take the visual out of a movie and just have John Williams music, the music will still be great. Um, and so he addresses us with such compassion and he's so understanding and but meticulous. You know, he's very concerned about pitch and he's very concerned about timing and he's very concerned that, to make sure that we're playing together across the room and to make sure that, you know, we're following him and that we're not getting bogged down by this or that. And it, it's, it's very similar to having an experience where you're playing a live concert where there, he starts to talk about music. He talks that he wants a little more passion here. He wants a little, you know, this has to be a little colder and, and it's very fun and it's it's very electric to be a part does he usually also explains what's going on in the scene or even in broad terms or is just you know tackling the musical problems so to speak not usually he's he very rarely tells us what we're doing and nobody really tells us what the scene is about i don't think a lot of people would care 
I personally would love to know. I always love to know my motivation. I was, I was an actor when I was younger. And, you know, I, I want to know my motivation for my scene. <laughs> uh, but but I, I, I like to know what the music is calling for. Yeah. You know, in, in Firebird, the, there's a horn solo at the end. So the question is, are you going to play that as if it's a new beginning? Are you going to play that as if you're saying, here's the, here's the ends, goodbye everybody. Or are you going to play that as, oh, this is my love, my long lost love or, you know, or is this the ending of something? You know what I mean? Like, yes, it makes everything different and it makes the music different. And I think John really shows that in his conducting and his explanation of the emotions of, of the piece that he's trying to convey, but he doesn't tell us what the scene is. And we don't get to see the scenes anymore. We didn't see him for Star Wars because they're very strict about what they allow us to see. And he only had a little television set in front of him so he could see it. Uh, and J.J. Abrams and Steven Spielberg and all those people were watching, but not us. the main things that he has to take care of is uh, the, the feeling the emotion of the scene and usually this is taken by the music uh, through performance you know a horn solo in a certain moment in a movie helps the, the the audience to feel something can you walk me through how usually the french horn section is built in john williams uh, scores i mean he has of course certain players in mind when he already writes the music however how the work is usually split between the musicians, uh, how are they divided and so on? He likes to, to run with between three and six players. I think three is good for him for a chamber ensemble. We had four for the Anna Sophie Mutter, but not on everything. So for the Anna Sophie Mutter album, it was a lot of one horn and a lot of one and two horn, but you know, and three and four would be tacit. So he's not afraid to change the size of the orchestra and they hire the biggest size they need based on the cues that he wrote and then he'll just use a couple of them and not everybody or whatever but the way that his orchestration is really interesting is that one two three so in the star wars movies like one two three four would be a section and then five and six would be playing a whole nother thing and would okay. be playing playing more uh linked with the trombone parts and the trumpets would have four trumpets. And so one, two, three would be a section and fourth trumpet would be playing the horn parts. And the trombones had five trombones and like one, two, three would be playing trombones. Fourth trombone would be playing with the trumpets. The fifth trombone would be playing, you know, bass and there were two tubas sometimes. So he intermeshes the orchestration of the brass to give this blend that is so interesting and so kind of rare.
that is straight out of the classical masters of the orchestration. I think if you get to look at probably a Stravinsky or Rimsky-Korsakov or other great that he probably also looks at role models in, in a certain way. And how, how much does he change while uh, recording? Because I know that there are many occasions where he he maybe had to, you know, write down a little, maybe a little thing and change, you know, two or three notes during the recording, you know, between takes. Well, it really depends. Um, sometimes it's all perfect uh, because he's very meticulous about his sketches. He writes everything out by hand and everything is, is sketched out and then he gives it to the orchestrators and it's all, it's all orchestrated. So they basically just have to take down his notes. Yes. On the computer to print his parts but we there's still some mistakes sometimes in in the interpretation from his writing to the um to the music to the printed music but there's also sometimes you know maybe they recut a scene or maybe it's just not giving the emotional effect that he wants and so he you know i know for so the end of uh, rise of skywalker at the very end um, there's a horn solo i think i had to play that close to 20 times the big solo at the end with the, the, the force theme? Yeah, I think I played it close to 20 times because I had, and I have no idea which one they took. At some point, I started just playing it differently just to make sure that I didn't get stagnant in what I was doing. Yeah. But now, then I'm like, well, now I don't know which take they used. And some of them I liked better than others, but that's not the point. <laughs> <laughs> but I, it kind of is the point because you don't know what they're going to do. And, you know, he kept fussing with the string. So I play my thing. And then the strings would come in. And he's like, you know what? I want that in the violas. And so they'd part, write the part in the violas. Let's try it again. Uh, you know what? I want that as an F sharp violin. So let's swap your, you know, let's put the firsts on the bottom and just invert that chord. And so I'd play it again. He, the strings would come in. Okay, you know what? I think we need to add the cellos to that. Cellos, can you put an F sharp in B3 on bar eight? So, you know, I'd play it again. And they'd like, okay, you know what? Let's uh, hold on a second. Let's do that. And, it just kept going over and over and over and finally finished it after like eight or nine takes. And then he's like, okay, let's go to the next one. And it was that same cue, just an alternate version with a different string ending. We did that another eight or nine times. And <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> like, so probably that piece is very stuck in your mind, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Said, he said, we have a good horn solo, so, you know, you don't don't really worry about it. We just have to do this again. I'm like, well, I'm not going to just, you know, phone it in. You've got to play it as well as you can every single time, right? And and that's really where it, it becomes interesting to be a studio player is, is just because you play something 16 times or if you play it once, it doesn't mean it had anything to do with how you played it or anything like that. Sometimes yeah. you just end up with a million takes because the composer is changing this or changing that or the orchestration he wants this or that or you know the director's there and they're like it's just not it's not hating me and so i i want it to be more blue and and more 
cold. And so <laughs> then he's got to be like, okay, let's add piccolo to that um, and make it in the high register. And we're going to put E flat alto clarinet in the low register. And uh, how about that? Yeah, and, and also because I think that, especially in, the, in these uh, last Star Wars movies, the, 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 the last couple of ones, uh, a lot of changes were, were coming th throughout the, you know, the recordings. I know that he did a lot of recording sessions because, you know, usually they, they put out uh, maybe some sequences and they get back and redo things. And so he had to rewrite a lot of music and so on. So I guess it's very clear for him to have, a, you know, an overall picture of what is going on, because I guess that that's very challenging also for, for him, because I mean, He's 88 years old now, I mean, but he's still trying to do his best <laughs> all the time. Yeah. I think he prepared himself a little bit for this one. The first uh, episode seven, he wrote the whole thing and we did a whole bunch of uh, sessions in a row and then a whole bunch more sessions. And then there, you know, edits would happen because JJ is very known for editing film after picture lock. It used to be that you have picture lock and then they would take it away from the director and take it away and give it to the composer and they couldn't do anything about it. Anymore. But now with all this digital, everything is, there's no such thing as picture lock anymore. So you can edit the film constantly and redo the scenes and redo everything. And so I think that kind of caught John off guard the first time. And this time we just had two sessions and then we would take like a month off and then we'd have two sessions and then we'd take a month off and two sessions and then one session and then, you know, take another month off and then three sessions and then take another, just to make sure that everything was under control. Yes. Right. first chair uh, French horn on several of these. I mean, uh, I checked, I, you were a first chair on uh, The Last Jedi and The Rise of Skywalker uh, together with uh, LA Field Principal Andrew Bain. Uh, so how that is managed? I mean, how you and Andrew usually split in this sense? How their cues where John wants you to be first chair and other where he feels Andrew is right? or has this to do with maybe more availability on a certain day or things like that? On The Last Jedi, it was more of an availability thing where we get, you know, he was out touring and so they were, they needed another principal horn. And I had been recommended to the contractor by several of the other people in the orchestra, including the lead orchestrator um, and head, head of the copyist and so I uh, I got an opportunity to play principal for John on Dear Basketball. Oh okay, yes, the the Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant, yeah.
So they tested me out on deer basketball to see if if I had enough metal to <laughs> survive. And they were happy with it. And so I got an opportunity to play some principal and play some small solos. And they, you know, they didn't give me too much, but they were just checking. And then I ended up playing um, some stuff on, on the post. Uh, and Andrew and I split that too. And, uh, you know, usually there's a solo or two here and there. Um, and out of a six hour session or seven hour day, if you include an hour for lunch, you have, you know, an hour of stress or an hour or two of stress. This was five of the six hours that I was playing of absolute stress of, you know, really delicate chamber music, soft entrances, solos. pressure-wise my hands get really cold when I um when I get nervous and my hands were frozen I actually bought a hot water bottle heater and I just kept trying to warm my hands up that whole day but I remember uh, Ready Player One was after that with Alan Silvestri and there was a big horn solo at the end of that I remember not being nervous for that at all uh, they were trying to choose between a horn and a flute and I was just like okay here's the, here's the part I played it you know I played it with as much passion and emotion as I could but I didn't have the nervousness because I had been broken like a couple months before by being so nervous for so long with John on the stand that I just was okay after that. And I think that helped me a lot. You know, it's, it's hard to learn how to do it without actually doing it. talk with the other uh, session musician and, and usually the, the level of stress can be very very high I mean and this is something that should be reminded for for the people who are listening to this that you usually don't receive music in advance you arrive at the studio you open up the book and you can have you know the most boring whole notes for the whole day or you can have the most complicated part and you have to play it perfectly from really from the get-go. So how did you manage that level of stuff throughout your, your career of being a student musician? Was that something uh, very difficult at the beginning or, or was it something that you were you know, starting to deal with very early on? You know, performance anxiety is something that we don't talk about enough as musicians. I think that if you look at the sports world, you look at sports medicine and that was created you know, a coin termed 50 years before music medicine. You look at, you know, sports psychology, and that was a term coined, I don't even know if music psychology is really out there yet. You know, peak performance psychology for musicians is 
still something where people say, don't talk about being nervous or else you'll get nervous. So you'll make other people nervous. It's like, no, no, no. We all have this fight or flight response that comes from stress. And there's no sense in saying it doesn't exist. It's a lot better to just accept it and learn how to cope with it and learn mechanisms, how to deal with it. Um, I actually started studying with uh, Dr. Don Green. Um, you can find him at winningonstage.com. He's a, a peak performance psychologist who, you know, was a Green Beret and was worked with SWAT teams and Olympic athletes and lots and lots of musicians. He started working at Juilliard and New World um, and he got really into helping musicians. He has three books out, I think, Performance Success, Audition Success, and Fight Your Fear and Win. And uh, I started working with him. You know, it wasn't until two things. One, working with him, and the other, working with Pat Sheridan when I went back to school to get my master's, um, where I started learning about body mapping and maximum output for minimum input. But so working with Don Green on performance psychology and how to deal with nerves and what they are and what your body's doing and, you know, the psychological aspect of playing and centering. He has a centering technique, which is not, it's not meditation. It's not uh, mindfulness. It's a whole different active um, mode. And I know that Andrew uses that as well. Um, but centering technique, which, which brings your uh, focus and your concentration into an absolute peak. And, you know, I, I studied with him for countless hours that really, really changed my life. And then it was right after I started studying with him that I started advancing on auditions, making it to the finals for associate principal, the LA Phil, making it to the semifinals for New York principal, uh, New York Philharmonic principal, you know, super finals for the LA chamber orchestra. And finally, I just won the principal of Hollywood bowl orchestra, um, this past February because I still take auditions. That's one of the best ways to keep improving is because you don't, even if you practice every day, unless you're practicing for something specific, you're, there's still not quite the same level of scrutiny that you give to yourself. At least you can, you can test yourself about it. You see how, how, at what level you have arrived and, and exactly. what improvements you can, you still have to do and so on. I feel lucky where I have a good job and I have a good career and I don't, I'm not, monetarily um, dependent on winning a job. So I can do it more of an experiment. Like, what if I prepare like this? What if I go on the stage with this kind of mindset? What if I do this? And so it's, it's been a really, really interesting thing. And, and right after the um, playing for New York, uh, the second time in the semifinals uh, was when I did the, the solo for Star Wars for Rise of Skywalker. And I had to bring myself back to Avery Fisher stage because, you know, on all the other solos, people will get the binary sunset solo or whatever. There's some strings going on and you get to enter and you get to join them. This one said, the cue said horn solo. And then he conducted and then I started playing and then the horn and then the strings came in like five bars later. So <laughs> yes, it's a little bit different than the, the original version. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So having just come off of Avery Fisher, Fisher stage playing, uh, Haydn 31 horn signal and you know uh, all these excerpts and stuff it was easy for me to get back into that mindset and back into being on that stage and feeling what it was like to play where nobody was there and to be as relaxed and as and, and have as good of a sound as possible even though nothing else was going on even though it was dead silent yes that's the, absolutely that's very 
you know, it's, it's, it's something that probably isn't talked a lot, like you said before, you know, but you have to be constantly, you know, working on your, uh, your, your artistry, your, your, not just on the technical side of things, but also in what it takes to be a musician at a certain level. And in this sense, uh, I, I remember you did a panel with Sarah Willis, another legendary former hornist from yeah. the LSO who played with John in the previous Star Wars movies. Uh, so when John brought Star Wars to LA, of course, it was a big deal. But however, do you think he had to change also a little bit the way he approached the sound? Because, it, you know, it's different. You know, LA isn't London. So what was, uh, in your, I mean, at least in your uh, perspective was there something different you you perceived from uh, in terms of sound in terms of you know i don't know performance i think that john has worked in los angeles enough that he knows that he can get whatever sound he wants and that i don't think he changed his music particularly based on where he was recording because those guys in London, they sound so good. It's, they're absolutely incredible musicians. And I think that, you know, it's the same here in Los Angeles. You're in a big metropolis with a large talent pool. You're going to have some absolutely incredible musicians. And so I don't think that there's anything that he necessarily had to adjust um, depending on where he was. <laughs> Listen to the, the. I think the was the first one. The Force Awakens. I was really blown away because it's like, wow, this is. It was a beautiful, beautiful recording. The performance was really pitch perfect in my in my opinion. And also, you had Gustavo Dudamel coming conducting a couple of sessions, right? He did. Gustavo came in and conducted the X-wing scherzo and the uh, ending credits sequence. Um, kind of sweet that John had written. And that was, that was really, that was really interesting. You know, I, I've worked with Gustavo, I've subbed with the LA Phil for 11 years or something, you know, so I've, I've played with Gustavo plenty. I've been on tour with him and he's, he's a great guy, but it was just, you know, it's a little different uh, when you're playing John's music with John and then playing it with Gustavo. John is just so natural with his own music. But it was really exciting and everybody was really excited and, and we got to play things a little faster. You know, as, <laughs> as, as Gustavo would say, it's a little crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, he, he puts a lot of lots of energy in John's yeah. music. I was listening to the recording he did with the LA Phil, maybe last year it was, uh, with a, a kind of a greatest hits of John's, you know, most famous pieces. And he tackles it at a very strong uh, sharp tempo, you know, especially the march from Superman's very super fast, you know, like <laughs> Superman going <laughs> at full speed. <laughs> ¶¶ 
is fantastic because it's uh, really someone from the younger generation, a very, very talented conductor from the younger generation who has been inspired by John's music when he was a kid and now he's, you know, one of the best conductors in the world, working currently. And how much important is that? I mean, you were listening to John Williams' music since you were a kid and you were kind of inspired by and becoming a musician also thanks to his music. So how much important is that? Uh, for the future generations. I mean, how, how how long the legacy of John Williams will will be, you know, in the future? Well, I think in order to get, with music, listening is everything. If you're not listening to music, if you're not listening to things that, that you want to be like, then you're not going to accomplish it. Um, you know, if you're, I teach at uh, Cal State University, uh, Long Beach. So one of the things I tell my students all the time when they're preparing excerpts, it's like, have you listened to this? How many recordings have you listened to? How many times have you listened to it? Did you just listen to your part or did you listen to all the other parts that are going along with it? You know, what is the flute doing right here? What is the oboe doing right here? What, who are you playing with? Yeah. Not just that, but you know, if you, if you look at the greatest jazz musicians, they just listen and listen and listen and listen and listen. If you, Listen, you know, look at the greatest classical musicians. They just listen and listen and listen and listen and listen because that's how you get that music inside of you. That's how you make it so that it doesn't sound like you're doing something unnatural because it just becomes a part of you. Style is everything in music, right? Sound and style. And without sound and style, there's just notes. And if you just want notes, you just use a synthesizer. You know, there's great, there's great samples out there that if you don't want sound or style, that's all, it's, you do that all day, every day. I, I feel like it's the same with movie music. I mean, I have a bookshelf full of soundtracks and, and I listen to everything that comes out and I, I you know, I'm constantly listening and, and to classic scores as well as new scores, as well as you know, not just us here in LA, but also London and also Paris had some interesting scores come out, um, Prague and all, all of that. You know, for any genre you're in, if you want to be a part of that genre, if you want to play music in that genre, you have to listen all the time. So I feel like his music is, you know, ubiquitous enough outside of the musical community that I think it's going to last. But I think it's really important that if anybody wants to do this, then they should be listening to what he does. get that sense of music making 
uh, he, he likes to record with a full orchestra on the stage all together. He never resort to you know doing things with separate sections and so on. You, you work with a, a lot of other great composers, you know, like Silvestri or Randy Newman, who also loved to to record things the old-fashioned way. We can say. But also you worked a lot with the, with the younger generation, of course. So what are the pros and cons of, of doing things separately? Uh, the pros of doing things separately is that you can do things really fast. Because if, if we're going for brass-only dates, or even French horn-only dates sometimes, then they say, oh, you know, we play our part, and they... Um, you know, give us their notes and we play it again and then we skip 80 measures of rest and then we go to the next part. Now the con of that is that we're always playing and usually it's not easy. But when we're split up like that, it's oftentimes a cartoon or an action film or something where you're just blasting all the time and you have three to six hours of that straight, it, it gets really, really taxing and it's really difficult. And also, you know, the other cons of that are that we are using one headphone. We have one headphone on one ear and we have our other ear open so that we can hear the rest of the room and match each other. But through that one little headphone that we have, we have to get click, we have to get all the other stuff that they've recorded and we have to get their pre-recorded track. And so we have to figure out how to pitch, right? If they're like, oh, it's a little sharp or it's a little flat, we just go, okay. We have no idea because it sounds fine. You know, we're together or we're with the click and they're like, you're a little behind the violins. And we're like, okay, can you turn up the violins? And so then they turn up the violins and then you can't hear the click as much or, you know, maybe they haven't, uh, you know, they just did the strings earlier that day and they haven't edited together. So they don't have the final version of what they're going to do, but you still have to play it to what they have to give you. So it gets really complicated and it's really difficult for us. And we just have to take their, you know, people in the booth when they say we're sharp or flat or whatever, we just have to take them and say, okay, how sharp, how flat. And if we went into the booth, you know, they have $100,000, $300,000, you know, B&H, whatever speakers, and, and you play back and you're like, oh, yeah, that's obvious. It sounds, that sounds terrible. But, you know, in your head, in your headphones, you're like, that sounds perfectly fine. I don't understand what the difference is. It's a completely different way of, of working, of course. And, and, and I guess someone like John could, couldn't work that way. I guess it was, it's so used to, to you know, to... The, the, the full stage with the full orchestra and and making music together and that probably refers to the to what we were talking before about the the the, the atmosphere of music making he wants to create among the people and in this sense uh, do you have any any treasure memory about working with him in, in some sessions or or any any story or anecdote that you you'd like to share in in, in this regard yeah I I mean, one of the one of the more fun things to do is when he complains about the click, because occasionally we'll have to do something with click, and so we'll play it without click and rehearse it, and then he's like, "Oh, we have to, we have to play with this godforsaken click," and he puts his headphones on, and we play with it, and then 
he's like, oh, I can't hear anything. Can we do another one without click? And then we do it without click. He's like, that's so much better, isn't it, Sean? And Sean Murphy is the engineer. He's like, yeah, it's much better. It's much better. <laughs> Great. I think we just need to do another one of those. And so he, he's able to weasel his way out of playing with click every time. And uh, it's pretty funny. I, one of the fun things, um, Kobe Bryant was talking about doing the deer basketball thing, and he was up on the stand. And he said that he had called John and asked him to, to do this. And John said, oh, I, I don't think I'm the right person. Don't you, you're, you, you know, you want something electronic or, you know, I don't think I, I can, I have the skills to score this for you. And Kobe was like, do you know who you are? <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's like, of course you do. You're going to be great. It's perfect. He's so soft spoken when he speaks to us that, you know, we all wear our headsets just so that we can hear him because we're in the back of the room and he's like, people, people, measure 35. It's a little too, a little too much. Okay, ready? One, two, so, so. And he starts to conduct. has an amazing amount of uh, vim and vigor in him. And, you know, occasionally he would have uh, Bill Ross, who's one of his um, lead orchestrators, worked with him a lot. He, Bill Ross did the music for Galaxy's Edge, went over to London and conducted that stuff. But uh, <laughs> he, Bill, towards the end, at the end of last movie, you know, he would be like, Bill, why don't, why don't you conduct a, a little bit, you know? And he would get off the stand and go, um, go sit down and, Bill Ross would conduct a cue and John would be right back up on his feet with a, with a score going and talking to the, uh, talking to the violins and talking to the cellos. And then he'd kick Bill off the stand and he'd start conducting again. He just couldn't, <laughs> couldn't deal with not being a part of it. <laughs> it's just really endearing and the energy is amazing. Oh, and, and <laughs> when we did the Anna Sophie Mutter album, his interactions with Anna Sophie is, is, we're so funny. She's she's such a, a hilarious person, and he's just like yes, whatever whatever you say, darling, whatever you say, absolutely, yes, we'll do it that way. And it's, she's just so humble and so gracious and so kind. And I feel so lucky to have gotten to work with him. I think it's a dream come true that that I think everybody has. And I, and I'm sorry that I was <laughs> that I, that it was me, but I'm also not because it was just. It's something that I, I will treasure forever. And, I, and I, from what I understand, it's not the last thing we'll ever hear from him. And, and you know, he has more projects coming out. And I can't wait to, to, to record more with him, but it's been an, an honor. Do you have any favorite John Williams scoring in your musical, you know, collection? <laughs> I, I really like Close Encounters of the Third Kinds. I think that's an amazing score. Oh, you know, um, Dracula. 
unbelievable. I mean, you know, I mean, we could go down, you know, Sabrina uh, was phenomenal, uh, you know, all of his Harry Potter stuff. But, but I thought that Dracula was, I think, is one of his more underrated scores. And he did that, that arrangement for Anisophie Mutter also. Where he did. There, there's this big, lush, very high horn climax at the end. It's really very yeah. powerful. I mean, it's like Tchaikovsky. <laughs> it's, it's yeah, very... <laughs> exactly. My brother, who's the, the movie music buff, was so excited that Dracula was on there. He's like, see, I told you, this is the best. <laughs> <laughs> thing I'd love to, to ask you is uh, do you have any word of counsel for, for young musicians who start once probably to follow a similar path of, of your of yours you know um, yes uh, you know listen 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 like I said at the very beginning be great and you know the, the work will find you and you have to live somewhere where it's happening you know um, Connections are everything, you know, it's if you move to L.A. to do this, you have to give yourself an opportunity to do it. It's they call this a 10 year town because it takes about 10 years to really establish yourself. Um, you know, my first session was 2007. Um, so I'm 13 years later, you know, a thousand sessions in and, uh, you know, I'm starting to be where I'm at. Um, but it took a long time to establish that. And even though my first session was 2007, I spent six years before that playing, you know, Korean churches and high school graduations and college graduations with the brass quintet. And you, you just work your way up and you just keep playing. And, you know, part of being a, a freelancer, uh, which is what we are out here, um, is you have to be really nice. You have to be really cool. You have to be a fun hang. If you're not fun to hang around, Nobody wants to work with you. It doesn't matter how good you are. If you're a bummer to be around, nobody wants to call you. Because, you know, if, if we go play at the American Music Awards or the Grammys or whatever, we have to be on set all day. You show up in the morning, you play a rehearsal, and then you have seven hours where you can't leave. And so you just have to hang, hang out with some people, walk around. It's really fun and I wouldn't trade it for anything. Be diligent, practice really hard, get really good at what you do, study somewhere where the work that you want to do is going on, be patient and be kind. Those are very, very good words of counsel, I can say. <laughs> Dylan, thank you very much for, for sharing this time with me and with the Legacy of John Williams podcast. And I hope to talk with you soon again. Thank you, Mauricio. It's been an absolute pleasure. Hope you all enjoyed this and ciao.
Thanks to Dylan Hart for his time and generosity. Visit thelegacyofjohnwilliams.com for more articles and interviews. Thank you for listening. Until the next episode of The Legacy of John Williams Podcast. <laughs>